Hello and welcome to Made to Measure, the podcast of the Journal of Trading Standards. I'm Paul Evans. In this episode, we're looking at scams. When most people think of trading standards, fighting scams is probably among the first things that spring to mind. Taking on scammers, especially those who target elderly or vulnerable people, is such an important part of what trading standards is about that it's become virtually synonymous with the profession. But, as with any anti-crime activity, there is always the risk of the scammers using advances in technology and changes in people's habits to stay one step ahead of the authorities. So how can trading standards keep up with these ever more sophisticated ways of defrauding people, and how is this being affected by cuts to the profession's budgets? We spoke to Louise Baxter, head of the National Trading Standards Scams Team, and Mike Andrews, the coordinator of the National Trading Standards eCrime Team, about how they approach this interminable battle, both online and off. From fake diet pills to dodgy dating websites, Trading Standards has its work cut out in the continuing fight against the scammers, and it's using a wide range of innovative techniques to tackle the problem, including cross-border collaboration and even artificial intelligence. We started by asking Louise to tell us a bit about the scams she comes across during her everyday work. Okay, so um, my name is Louise Baxter. I am head of the National Trading Standards Scams Team. And our focus generally within the scams team is looking at consumers who are targeted by criminals via letter scams, telephone scams or doorstep crime. Our main business is around proactively identifying those victims and trying to support them um, by passporting information to local trading standards so that they can provide effective interventions with those identified victims. We also do some investigative work into the source of the scam mail, so international investigations, and we do a lot of work around collaboration, partnership working, um, and very sort of aggressive consumer campaigns to try and build that community resilience um, and to try and educate people about scams so that we, we think that prevention is far better than cure. So, Louise, are there any particular types of scam that are on the rise? We still see the sort of standard scams. We still see sort of fake lotteries, fake clairvoyance, fake prize draws. We have seen a shift from some of these being in letter bases to actually coming via email addresses. And with more people being on the internet, we've seen an increase in email scams um, and telephone scams. We have seen a recent trend around subscription traps, vitamin scams and fake advertising as well for people so too good to be true offers on social media platforms um, and via emails asking people to respond and what do you mean by subscription traps so a subscription trap could be something so a scam subscription trap could be something around miracle cures so uh, the most fantastic anti um, weight loss tablets so a weight loss tablet or uh, anti-wrinkle cream or something that's a miracle cure um, so you could have vitamins or supplements, so a, a miracle cure for cancer or something similar to that. And then they would sign you up to a monthly subscription where you would receive this. Probably it could be a dangerous product. We don't know what's in some of the products. Um, or it just could be an absolute placebo with nothing in it whatsoever. Um, but those sort of scams and then you get repeat money taken out of your bank each month. Subscription traps are also something Mike Andrews, the national coordinator of the National Trading Standards e-crime team, finds himself up against, as well as a range of other issues. Now, our primary focus is tackling all forms of online harm directed at UK consumers. And that can cover a range of issues from the sale of counterfeit and dangerous products on social media platforms, for example, through to large-scale fraud cases, ultimately, uh, where consumers collectively are defrauded out of millions and millions of pounds in, in, in a number of the cases that we've taken. 
and we adopt a number of tactics to try and combat the harm caused. Um, ultimately, we're looking to identify offenders and, and, and prosecute them and get them through the courts. But increasingly, we're looking at tactics where we can disrupt the harm as well, because what we often find is a lot of the um, online consumer harms that we see are they, they originate from overseas. Um, so if we look at things like subscription traps and uh, similar scams, often the offenders are based overseas, so we're, we're increasingly looking at measures to, to try and limit the impact of that by taking online content down, website takedowns, and removal of content from social media and the like. Louise, how do scammers tend to go about gathering information that will enable them to target particular victims? Well, we, we've seen a lot, you see um, lead generator adverts, for example, in, in newspapers um, and lead generator telephone calls where people will ask you for certain information. It's also, you can data mine, you can buy a data list. So our core victims generally tend to be, um, the average age of our victim is 75 um, so what, what you'll see is that you could actually go online now and buy a data list of people that are over 75, potentially living on their own, who could have a disability. Those people are more likely to be socially, socially isolated, which then means that they're more likely to, they could be more likely or more susceptible to responding to a fraud or a scam because the fraudster or the criminal would fill that void of that social isolation. We see lead generator companies who might put an advert in a paper for a hearing aid or a knee support. And then people would respond to that. And if you tick the put, they ask for your date of birth, they ask for your living arrangements. Uh, so therefore, potentially you could be in the right age bracket, potentially with a disability or something that means that you're not as able to get about as you were before because of the nature of the product that they're trying to sell. Um, and then, they, but they capture all of that information, and then that that information is then sold on. We also see that once somebody's responded to one scam, they get they can they often get added to what's called a suckers list, and those lists are then sold from organised crime group to organised crime group often with markers against them, so that actually if you're somebody that is very susceptible to responding to a fraud or scam, or a particular fraud or a scam, so like uh, boiler room scams or high-value high investment scams, they will mark you as such, so there'll be a marker by your name. And when the cases you come across overlap different boundaries or sectors, how do you go about working with different local authorities and agencies? So we, we work across all local authorities, so we share information and work across all of the local trading standards authorities. And if there was a company on their patch within their local area, we would work in partnership with them. Um, and generally that would be their, their decision to what actions they would take about any particular companies on their particular in their particular area. It's needs-based, it's tailored depending on the case that we've got. We work very successfully internationally with something called the International Mass Marketing Fraud Working Group which is dealing with different postal services and also dis different law enforcement agencies abroad. Because what we found with a lot of these criminals is they don't target on their own patches. So American criminals may target the UK because then they don't, then people are less likely to report it. So when it comes to an international investigation, the Americans may not have any victims, but we would. So then we would provide them with victim information and be able to support their investigation in that way. Mike, what's the scale of the operations you encounter in your work with online scams? Do they tend to be pretty big or more on the level of a single person operating out of their spare bedroom? It's a mixture. Um, I think it's fair to say. If, if, I mean, if you look at things um, like the, the sale of counterfeit products and, and, and dangerous products, that often is um, somebody. It's still, even though they're, they're predominantly maybe selling it on, on Facebook, for example, that is often still um, somebody operating out of their bedroom. There, there can be elements, uh, or there are, there are elements of organised criminality attached to that, and, and some of the cases we've done around Operation Jasper, there is definitely 
elements of organised criminality behind it and it isn't just a matter of somebody selling a few trains out of their back bedroom. But then in other cases, um, some of the more serious fraud that we've investigated, um, that they, they are, to all intents and purposes, operated like a business. So, you know, they'll have an office premises, they, they'll employ staff, they'll have IT networks, um, and so outwardly they would appear to be just like any other business, but they're operating a criminal enterprise. Obviously, online scams are a fairly recent phenomenon. How have the scammers become more sophisticated as technology has evolved? Uh, well, it's a number of ways. I mean, if, you, if people were to think back to the old, um, the, what they call it, the Nigerian 419 scam, and, you know, people got a, a very poorly written email that, were, that was written in sort of pidgin English and, and you know, poor grammar, uh, spelling mistakes, and they were usually the telltale signs that something wasn't quite right. But if you look at some of the more sophisticated um, phishing emails that are sent now, um, we've seen recent ones around, uh, for example, people being asked to renew their TV licence. They look far more sophisticated. They're they're, they're very professionally designed. Um, We don't have the issues with with spelling and grammar. Um, They'll use um, layouts that look almost identical to what would be an, an official communication. So there's a far greater level of sophistication attached to those types of scams but also increasingly the use of um, what, what any other legitimate business would use, so that they're advertising on social media, they're paying for adverts on, on, on uh, search engines, on Google, all of which, as a, as a legitimate business, you would be expected to, to do, and the criminals are now doing the same. So it adds this air of authenticity to the, to the fraud that consumers don't necessarily see through. And how much impact have things like e-commerce and social media buying groups had on the types of scam that you come across, Louise? Well, that, yeah, the problem that we've got is we're expecting everybody to be able to access the internet and we're expecting everybody to be able to use it and use it safely, but we're not providing any training around it. So if you're expecting sort of uh, what the silver surfers, actually we need to be engaging people and young people as well because young people get taught in schools now, but it's around that community resilience piece and again that education and awareness. How do we tr- we expect people to use the internet and access the internet? How do we get them to use that safely without divulging all of their personal information? It's like even even so the text scams that you get around, or oh, your NatWest account's been breached, or your HSBC account's been breached. You need to ring this telephone number or click on this link. Those are all scam texts. So again, with the use of mobile phones rather than landlines, all the technology is moving at such a rate that people can't keep up with it. And actually, we then then provide them the, the wherewithal to be able to use it safely. And the criminals are always one step ahead of us. So wherever we think we are, they're always ahead of us. So with most of the cases you become involved with, do the victims tend to come to you with a complaint or do you take a more proactive approach to looking out for red flags like lead generation adverts in newspapers, for example? OK, so our, our, our core business is a proactive identification of the suckers list and the victim list to be able to seize those lists and look at those lists to identify the people that are on them. Um, and we also do a, a, a very large campaign called Friends Against Scams, which is around educating people to identify the signs that somebody may be being targeted by criminals um, and then actually how to have that initial conversation with them. One of the biggest barriers to people reporting the fact they've been defrauded or scammed is the fact that there's a shame element to it because uh, people feel silly or foolish and actually there's a scam out there for everybody. So what we try to do is sort of take away the shame element and also make it okay to talk about it by getting people to share their own personal experiences. Sort of that vicarious education piece. So if I educate you to look at, I'm not educating you on fraud and scams because um, you'll you think that you won't be a victim of fraud or scams. So the, the, and you've got too much going on in your life, going to work, children, whatever you're doing, to actually for those messages to land. But you will have a mum, a dad, an auntie, an uncle, a carer, someone that you care about that 
I can train you, I can give you a piece of training that will allow you to identify whether or not that person is being scammed or not. I also asked Mike about how he tends to come into contact with online scams. Over the past four or five years, we've been we've been moving towards a much more intelligence-led way of tackling issues, and that's increasingly the the, the, the tactics that that we're using um, across the trading standards landscape, whether that's at local, regional, or national level with our team. But also, what we're trying to look at is the is where we can actually start to use technology um, to, to get ahead of the game. Now. It's a sad fact that we're probably always going to be, uh, you know, a, a step or two behind the criminals. But what we want to try and do is get as close as possible to them. So, for example, we're looking at whether or not um, artificial intelligence can be used as a means to flag websites that have indicators that that they could be fraudulent. Um, but of course, at the end of the day, it's just a machine making that assessment. But it would flag it up at an early stage, and then at least a human could then review that website and say, well, actually, yes. Um, We've reviewed it, and that has all the telltale signs of being a you know a particular fraud that we're familiar with, and therefore we can potentially intervene at a much earlier stage. Louise, are there any warning signs people should keep an eye out for if they know someone vulnerable who they think might be targeted? Things would be lots of posts, so lots of mail being received, um, and then them responding to that mail, so lots of stamps, lots of checkbook usage, lots of small amounts of cash payments going out of their bank accounts. Um, sometimes people talk about their telephone calls, they talk about their new friends... So they talk about the fact that these people are their friend. They might be very secretive because they would have probably been told not to talk about it, not to talk about the fact they've won money because it's only them. It's an exclusive offer just to them. They will also be, they won't believe that they're actually, a lot of the time the people don't believe they're being scammed. They don't know they're being scammed because they do believe that the person is their friend or that they've got a too good to be true offer. And when we talk about vulnerable people, presumably we're talking about people with conditions like perhaps dementia, which make it difficult to stay on top of everyday tasks. When we talk about vulnerabilities, we talk about people being vulnerable because of their situations or their circumstances, because we don't like to say that people are vulnerable because it's not, it's your situation that makes you vulnerable. So things like recent bereavement, recent retirement, a disability of some sort, a stay in hospital, possibly cognitive decline or, or early onset dementia, um, living with dementia, or it's other things like loneliness. Loneliness is a massive catalyst for people responding to scams. Because also loneliness is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So it has a massive effect on your health as well and your mental health. So then people become more susceptible and they may make those unwise decisions in those circumstances. And Mike, what about online? Presumably there's a split in terms of the demographic of the victim and the type of scam they're targeted by. I'm guessing older people are probably more likely to be targeted by investment scams, for example. For investment fraud, yes. Um we would tend to see that that um, affects more elderly uh, consumers than it than, than than it would otherwise, and that's that's uh, you know a factor of um, the fact that they're more likely to have that disposable income to make that investment. But then yes, some of the um, issues around the sale of counterfeit products or some of these free trials that we see that are, that are frauds that are directed at people. Um, who might want to lose some weight or to build some muscle, they tend to be perhaps consumers at the at the younger end of the age scale. But then we see other frauds that affect consumers right across the spectrum. So if we look at, for example, the copycat website cases we took, um, we had consumers there affected who were from the age of 17 who might have been applying for their first driving licence right up to um, more elderly vulnerable consumers. So it, it does depend on the type of um, fraud what demographic it affects, but then there are others that affect right across across the demographic spectrum. But that also, to go back to the earlier question around sophistication, that's also shifting as well, because particularly with the use of social media, 
um, and the fact that ads can be targeted at specific demographics. Um, so you, you and, and we've seen evidence of this when we when we've done some research around subscription traps, where we can set up profiles um, for example, a, 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 you know, a middle-aged woman who maybe from the, her postings looking to lose a bit of weight, uh, the fraudsters can specifically target social media adverts for diet pills that, are, that ultimately lead to a fraudulent subscription trap at that demographic. Um, and that's the level of sophistication that we're now seeing with some of these frauds that, that, can, that can be that targeted. So in some ways, these targeted adverts online as a source of leads for scammers are creating a sort of suckers list 2.0. It, it absolutely is, and um, if you if you combine the fact that you know a company can now go along to Facebook and say, well, I want a, I want a, a targeted ad campaign, and I want to target it at middle-aged women who um, might be looking to lose a bit of weight, then they can they can do that. But also, um, they can measure the effect of that, um, and they can also combine that with. Um, if, if they've got a website, which obviously they will have, because ultimately even if you respond to a, a Facebook ad, you, it's going to take you to the website where you're going to get defrauded. Um, they can then use all sorts of analytical techniques on the website, which, which they will have as part of the package that they've got through their hosting arrangements, to again further analyse the success rate of the ad campaign, how many people drop off, and they can then refine all of this to make sure that the ad is as targeted and, and, and as successful as possible. So it, it, it is, like you see, it's almost the, the sort of next level of sucker list because they can, they can really drill down to what does and doesn't work. And we've seen in some of the cases where we go back to the copycat website cases where there was communications between the co-conspirators around, well, we've changed this colour font on the website and we've now seen sales go up by 20%. Um, so that's the level of sophistication they can apply, which, which yeah, it, it, it is, it is kind of next level stuff almost. But actually, it's stuff that businesses would use on a on a day to day basis. Obviously, there's an element of privacy around anyone's online activities. Do you find that sometimes victims can be reluctant to come forward, partly out of embarrassment that they've been scammed in the first place, but also perhaps out of embarrassment about what they've been buying online? Absolutely, yes. I mean, we, we can we could sort of reel off any number of examples in in the cases we've dealt with where um, there's a significant that's a significant factor, um, and that that adds to um, the problem from our point of view because if you look at, I mean, it depends which of the the sort of studies and, and statistics you look at. Um, but by any measure, online crime is significantly underreported, and that's that's one of the factors. Is is that embarrassment factor? Oh well, I was a bit stupid. I don't really want to make a big fuss about it, um, and therefore um, I won't complain. So we, but but allied to that, and again, this is the ones that tend to be the most successful. Is we talk, we we, we are often talking about a relatively small sum of money. That, that an individual consumer may have lost, um, but then that's factored up by the fact that there may be tens, if not hundreds, of thousands of consumers who've lost that similar, relatively small sum of money. So there's an element of, well, I've lost fifty or sixty quid, a bit silly of me, but I'll just put that down to uh, you know a bad experience and I won't do it again. But of course, on the end of that is a is a is a fraudster who's done that to hundreds of thousands of other consumers, so they've made themselves very rich off the back of it. So there's a there's a number of factors at play around why consumers choose or choose not to uh, make a complaint, which then can make it a bit more difficult for us in terms of tracking down where the real harm's occurring. Louise, do you find it hard not to become emotionally involved in particular cases? Is that one of the main challenges of the job, or would you say it's more of a benefit? 
if you manage to help somebody, it's a real it's a real benefit of the job. Uh, there'll always be if you speak to training standards officers like myself who see victims, there'll always be one that you couldn't help, and they'll be the one that wakes you up at four a.m. Trying to think of something different. How could we have done something different? What tactic could we've used to support them? Because what this is is it's older people being groomed by organised crime groups who are then making them coercing them into taking all of their money. And it affects families as well. The and actually sometimes when you go in and you tell someone they've been scammed, the realization that and romance scams particularly and other scams like that, which are carried out over the internet and dating sites and those sort of things, the realization that somebody you felt that you were in love with, that you were having a relationship with, is actually a scam. It's it's sometimes exceedingly harmful, and that the anxiety and the stress and actually the realization that you've potentially lost fifty, sixty thousand pounds to a romance scam to somebody you thought you were having a relationship with we've had people flying to foreign countries to give money to what they think is their loved one or going to the airport to meet their loved one and then their loved one never showing up when they paid for a train a plane ticket and, and the, the 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 anxiety and stuff that that can cause people is just horrible well it's obviously a very important thing to address for the benefit of society as a whole how are you coping with cuts to your budget and resources? Oh, the, the cuts to training standards generally, so um, in relation to the local training standards perspective, I mean, to be honest, that, that is, is so subjective and down to the 200 different local authorities because everybody's subjected to different amounts of cuts. But I know that we, we at the top, we try to provide resources um, and best practice models so that we can share that across the piece, across the training standards, so that people are not reinventing the wheel and reusing resources where they don't need to. And it's also around trying to promote those pro- um, proactive partnership work. So actually people use other organisations. So when we've gone in and done the investigative bit and the support bit, there are other organisations like Age UK who can come in and befriend those people. There are other organisations like Citizens Advice um, that can help with budgeting and all of those things as well. Um, so it's around working in effective partnership with the police, and voluntary the third sector all of those organizations to ensure that that consumer is getting the best service and mike what are the big challenges for you i think the the the, the biggest challenge that we deal with is just is, is sheer volume um and that that's on on two fronts really one is the is the the, the volume of online crime because even even if you look at something that isn't necessarily um, a, a, a true online crime. So, for example, we've just done some recent work around um, doorstep criminals who uh, rogue property repairs, essentially, but increasingly they're using very, very well-designed websites to add a legitimate front to their business, where perhaps traditionally that wouldn't necessarily have been the case. Uh, and in the recent example we've looked at, we've we've we identified over twelve hundred websites that were connected to a whole series of rogue traders. So the volume of of online issues that cut right across crime now, whether or not it's a, you know an online, a true online crime, an offline crime, is is a significant challenge right across trading standards. Um, and that evidence is is often a key factor in the case so for, for a doorstep criminal you, you may well have been traditionally looking at what you know what that criminal has done from the point of view of the the rogue property repair and any claims that are made attached to that but actually we're increasingly seeing that the, the consumers made a choice to interact with that trader on the basis of what they might have seen on their website so that becomes a key element of any potentially misleading claims so there's a there's a there's a big issue there around making sure that online evidence that might be attached to any form of trade standards investigation is dealt with appropriately and that's that so that becomes a volume issue but also because in in terms of the sheer volume of data that or evidence now that is associated with any form of investigation that's electronic in nature 
um, people's use of mobile phones and tablets and, and, and other mobile devices is, is grows exponentially year on year. So as a result, almost every investigation that Trading Standards is now involved in has some form of electronic evidence. And that's only going to continue to grow as well. So that, from, from our point of view, that, that poses significant challenges, again, at a local, regional, national level. So, Louise, what best practice advice would you give to people working in trading standards and related areas about how to tackle scams? I mean, the first thing as well I would advise everybody to do is to do the online Friends Against Scams training, which gives you some information. And there's also sort of e-practitioner guidance on there as well. So if you want something a bit more in-depth with some of the legal background and also some of the sort of uh, tips on how to support a scam victim that's on the friends against scams website and then it's around actually it's it's everybody's different and this is what we, it's a really tricky job to do because actually every person is different and every person will respond in a different way um so it, it there is a little bit of perseverance and if, if at first you don't succeed with with certain scam victims it's also the first thing i would suggest is don't don't always believe what you see on face value um often scam victims are very good at hiding and concealing what's going on um, so it's actually about asking those probing questions to um, try and find out a little bit more, but also with not sort of being overbearing. One of the things for scam victims, you want to cultivate a relationship. It's also very difficult to not then become that person's friend because that's not our role either. So it's a really fine balance. So obviously you have that supportive caseworker role. You also need to work in partnership with adult social care because under the CARE Act, it's also financial abuse. So if you think there are other needs that need supporting from that from that victim's point of view, um, I would always flag it to adult social care and potentially do a dual visit because they will have a different skill set to the training standards officer. And then it's a case if there is a local perpetrator, it's about gathering that evidence to see whether or not you want to take a local prosecution. I also asked Mike whether he has any tips he can offer when it comes to tackling online scams. Well, I think, I mean, the, the first thing, uh, I mean, a lot of this would you would probably say was common sense, but you need to get as much information as possible as, a, as an early stage as possible, because one of the challenges that we find, um, it's not unique to online crime, but it's, 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 a, it's a big factor, um, is that circumstances evolve rapidly. So what might be reported as an issue with a particular website today um, you visit that website tomorrow and the website's completely changed. Um, so therefore, you've, there's, there's a lost opportunity there in terms of capturing what the real issue was. Um, so certainly that early, um, on, on receipt of that complaint um, or, or that intelligence around an issue, um, the earliest possible um, intervention that can be made in terms of gathering evidence, capturing a website is key really because that that'll help um, in terms of the, you know, what future direction that inquiry might take. Louise, is there any particular thing that could be done to empower you more in the work you do? One of the pieces of work that we focus on is around that consistent messaging piece, so it'd be really helpful if everybody was using the same messaging in their anti-fraud campaigns. Um, and just to ensure from a government perspective, we would really like it to be more joined up. Because when we're talking about scams and fraud, you have Bayes, who are responsible for mass marketing fraud. You have the Home Office, who's responsible for fraud. You have the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, who are responsible for nuisance calls, which are also scam calls. Uh, you have the sort of Department of Justice, you have the Department of Health, um, and you have other organisations who will be responsible for financial abuse and people that are lonely or social isolation, etc, etc. So it would be really good for us to have a more joined up central government approach to how we're going to deal with what is the same issue but we're all dealing with it and calling it something different, something around language and something around consistent messaging and something around a more centralised, joined-up approach. And finally, Mike, what's the real source of satisfaction you get from the work that you do? 
there's, there's obviously a great deal of satisfaction in in, in catching the bad guys. Uh, to, to I suppose it's a bit of a flippant phrase, but that 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 is where we get a great deal of satisfaction, um, particularly where and and judges have made um, comments about this at the conclusions of cases where there's a perception that well because somebody's hiding behind the anonymity of the internet, they're almost untouchable. Um, so when we can actually find somebody who's operating a large-scale fraud and have them prosecuted and sent to prison, that gives a great deal of satisfaction. But also, increasingly, um, some of the, the, the measures that we're, that we're trying to put in place to um, prevent the harm in the first place, um, again, equally brings a, a great deal of satisfaction. And I think some of the work that we're, we've currently got ongoing um, that will hopefully bear fruit in the near future uh, will put UK consumers in a much better place in terms of being able to pre protect them online and again that's that's clearly what we're, we're there to do and, and it's, it's very satisfying to be able to do that. Well that's it for another episode. Thanks to Louise Baxter and Mike Andrews for speaking to us and thank you for listening. We'll be back again in a fortnight with more insight into the world of trading standards. If you have any ideas or suggestions for the podcast, or you just want to get in touch, send us an email to madetomeasure at jtsmag.uk. Don't forget to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.